You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. William McKinley was the first United States president of the 20th century. And then... He was the first president of the 20th century to be assassinated. But why? And what did it have to do with the war that the United States government wants you to forget about? This is the story of the Philippine-American War. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. The Philippine-American War was a three-year conflict that reflected everything bad about 18th and 19th century America, and 20th and 21st century America as well. Xenophobia, war crimes, imperialism, colonization, racism, genocide. It's often referred to as simply the Philippine-American War or the Philippine Insurrection. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In order to really understand the Philippine-American War, we have to go back to the beginning, which was only a year prior. We have to go back to the Spanish-American War. On April 25, 1898, the United States declared war on Spain. But why? During this time, imperialism was the trend among bigger nations in the world. All of the great nations were extending their reach and influence to smaller nations. I mean, how do you think the United States even got here in the first place? And perhaps the biggest colonizer of them all was the Spanish. At one point, the Spanish had a colonial empire that was largely unrivaled founded through means of exploration and exploitation. The Spanish had influence on five different continents. At its height, the Spanish Empire controlled 35 colonies on every continent except Antarctica and Australia. Enter the United States. The U.S. knew that if they wanted respect, resources, and power, they needed to get into the colonization game. They wanted foreign resources and to have their military present on other continents. They wanted to be like Spain. The United States thought that expanding their reach would be both good for the United States and good for the rest of the world. I mean, that's not narcissistic at all. And the irony is not lost on me that about 110 years earlier, the United States was fighting tooth and nail to release the grip of another oppressive nation that had colonized them. But that's none of my business. At the same time, Cuba was in a fight for their own independence from the Spanish. This would become known as the Cuban War for Independence. The Spanish-Cuba colonial relation had been in place for 400 years at this point. It was initiated when our favorite explorer, Christopher Columbus, arrived on the island in 1492. The first permanent Spanish settlement in Cuba would be established in 1511. During the Spanish ruling of Cuba, it became the launching point for further Spanish exploration and colonization. And then came the production of sugarcane to be exported across the globe from Cuba. 
and you can probably guess where this is going. Spain began to import enslaved African people to the island of Cuba for this sugarcane production. The Spanish control of this island would become brutal and the atrocities committed were unfathomable. In the mid to late 19th century, the Cubans would begin to fight back and launch valiant efforts against the Spanish to gain their independence and their freedom. They began a wide host of rebellions and wars in 1868, and this would all lead to their independence 34 years later in 1902. Now, where does the United States fit in all of this? A man who worshipped imperialistic ideals like a Bible was none other than the future president and Mount Rushmore figurehead Theodore Roosevelt, who we are going to talk about at several points in this episode. And if he is not one of your most hated presidents after we finish this episode, I didn't do something right. At the time, Roosevelt was the assistant secretary of the Navy to then U.S. President William McKinley. And what many people wouldn't expect, it wasn't McKinley that was initially hungry to go to war with Spain and seize their colonial assets. It was Roosevelt. He was widely considered the most influential in the country regarding imperialism and foreign policy. McKinley was a little anxious and weary at the prospect of war, but he sent a warship to Cuba anyway to protect U.S. interests and relations with Cuba. Yeah, whatever, William. But get this, things didn't go as planned. Matter of fact, things went as badly as they could have hoped. The United States sent their forces at the same time that Spain and Cuba were in a war for independence. And on February 15, 1898, the USS Maine mysteriously exploded and 267 United States servicemen perished. To this day, we don't exactly know why this ship exploded or who was responsible. It's been kind of proven that it was most likely an engine room failure. But none of that mattered at the time. The United States blamed Spain. The American public and government couldn't let that slide. So two months later, on the 25th of April, 1898, America declared war on Spain. It's safe to say that Spain was ill-prepared for a fight with the United States. They came over to fight Cuba, but now they're fighting a nation 10 times the size of Cuba. The war was a surprise for all intents and purposes. This led to the Spanish-American War being pretty one-sided. Now, at the time, the Spanish also possessed colonial control of the Philippines, and this would lead to U.S. Commodore George Dewey leading a U.S. Navy fleet to the Philippines and absolutely wrecking the Spanish fleet in under two hours. This would come to be called the Battle of Manila Bay. And the battle was so one-sided that George Dewey would pause the fight to order breakfast for his crew. That's like having a wide open lane to the end zone and laying down at the one yard line because a touchdown would be too boring. The Spanish would lose over 370 men in the Battle of Manila Bay, while it's widely known that the U.S. would lose anywhere from zero to 10 people. Another interesting and perhaps unhinged part of the story and the war as a whole is that Theodore Roosevelt would resign his executive position with the White House to fight in the war. He would assemble a volunteer cavalry called the Rough Riders who would get to the Philippines and help advance U.S. forces into the country. This would be like a member of Biden's cabinet 
saying, hey, I'm good. I'm going to go fight in the Middle East. I'm going to go fight a war. I'm good with my executive position. I can't emphasize enough that Teddy Roosevelt was a supervillain. Like I said, the Spanish-American War was one-sided and uneventful. It lasted around six months. This all led to the Treaty of Paris. Now, this is where things get interesting. This was an agreement signed in France between the Spanish and the United States that would grant the U.S. its first overseas colony. Yay. I just know Teddy Roosevelt was standing at the negotiating table salivating. The United States would put a dagger in the Spanish colonial stronghold. This agreement granted the U.S. control of Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines, which they paid $20 million for, or in today's money, $720 million. The sad part about all of this is that during the Spanish-American War and before it, the Philippines were fighting their own war against the Spanish for its independence, the same way the Cubans did. In the 1890s, Filipino nationalists were putting pressure on the Spanish to weaken their control. They were led by a man named Emilio Aguinaldo. The Americans showed up with the whole white savior complex, thinking they were coming to rescue the Filipino people, even though we all know that there were ulterior motives involved. And the funny part is, the Filipinos were holding their own against the Spanish just fine. Under the leadership of Aguinaldo, the Filipino fighters turned over 15,000 Spanish prisoners of war to the Americans. There was a joint partnership going on between the Filipino people and the United States to fight the Spanish together. However, the United States would end up double-crossing the Philippines. The Spanish army struck a deal with Commander Dewey to stage a fake battle between the U.S. and the Spanish. The agreement was that the U.S. would win the battle and the Philippines would subsequently be handed over to the United States, not to the Filipinos. It was an under-the-table agreement that would keep the Philippines under the occupation of another Western power, thus withholding independence that they had been fighting for. This fake battle would come to be known as the Mock Battle of Manila. After this, the Americans sent a message to Aguinaldo and his forces to not enter the city. President William McKinley even sent out a telegram that said, There must be no joint occupation with the Filipinos. The Filipinos and all others must recognize the military occupation and authority of the United States. This hostile takeover of the Philippines had imperialists in the United States foaming at the mouth. This was amazing for the U.S. influence and world power. One imperialist with thoughts on the matter was a man named Mark Hanna, a U.S. senator from Ohio. Quote, with a strong foothold in the Philippine Islands, we can and will take a large slice of the commerce of Asia. Unquote. And remember that Treaty of Paris I mentioned earlier? Yeah, the Spanish did not allow one Filipino person to be present in the room during negotiations. Meanwhile, back in the United States, the imperialists were doing damage control. President McKinley went on a press tour to convince the American people that the takeover of the Philippines was necessary. If we don't do it, someone else would. However, Aguinaldo and his people would not just take this lying down. On February 4, 1899, Aguinaldo officially declared that peace and friendly relations with the Americans be broken and that the latter be treated as enemies within the limits prescribed by the laws of war. The Philippine-American War had begun. 
Over the next day and a half, 55 Americans died and 238 Filipinos died in the first and biggest battle of the war, the 1899 Battle of Manila. Aguinaldo and his forces would take the largest island of the Philippines, Luzon, and prohibit American ships from docking there. William McKinley then sent a fleet of ships there to put down what he deemed an insurrection. The Filipinos would quickly realize that they were outmatched. Aguinaldo's army was composed of mostly untrained fighters with sticks, spears, bows, and arrows. The United States had guns. So this resulted in the Filipinos resorting to guerrilla warfare, ambush warfare. Aguinaldo would enlist the help of a man named Antonio Luna, who was able to use his own men who had guns and lead ambush campaigns against the Americans. These soldiers got the nickname Marksmen of Death. Now, guerrilla warfare made American soldiers in the Philippines increasingly anxious and paranoid. They became distrustful of the everyday citizen. Was death waiting around some random corner in the form of an ambush? So what did they do? Concentration camps. They put innocent Filipino citizens in concentration camps. And that was just the start of the atrocities and war crimes committed by American soldiers. There were massive reports of American soldiers burning villages, rape, theft, and the destroying of Filipino resources. And torture. There was a lot of torture. One well-documented way that they did this was through something called the water cure. When a Filipino prisoner wouldn't say the right thing or give up enough information, American soldiers would hold them down and force them to drink a bunch of water in a short amount of time. They'd often hold their mouths open with a stick and close their nose with pincers so the water couldn't come back up. Along with the continued American dominance, the coup and assassination of Antonio Luna in June of 1899 and Aguinaldo's eventual capture in March of 1901, things were not looking good for the people of the Philippines. Coming up next, President McKinley pays the price. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the owl, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Now, we can't talk about the Philippine-American War without talking about the assassination of President William McKinley and how it occurred during the chaos of it all. President William McKinley was the 25th president of the United States. He was elected on March 4, 1897 and served until his death on September 14, 1901, just days after he was shot and only six months into his second term as president. He was the third president of the United States to be assassinated behind Abraham Lincoln and James Garfield. But never mind those two at the moment. Allow me to set the scene for how it all went down for McKinley's untimely death. On September 5, 1901, President McKinley was in attendance for the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. This was an exciting multi-day event with several attractions, many people looking forward to it and enjoying and indulging in it. But McKinley was the star of the show and the main attraction many Americans were eager to see. McKinley had just led the Americans to a sweet victory over the Spanish during the Spanish-American War and asserted American dominance. So his popularity was through the roof, especially among nationalists and imperialists. 
The attendees of this exposition were bursting with excitement to see him and to attend a speech he gave on September 5th. On September 6th, McKinley was scheduled to make his final appearance for this expo at the Temple of Music for a meet and greet. McKinley was excited and looking forward to it since he loved meeting and interacting with his constituents. However, his security and staff were apprehensive and feared an assassination attempt would be made on him. His personal secretary even tried to cancel this event twice, but McKinley insisted on keeping the meet and greet on his schedule for the day. Slowly but surely, visitors of the expo made their way into the temple with hopes of seeing and shaking hands with the president. And towards the front of the line stood a man named Leon Shalgosh, an avid American anarchist. Just a few days prior to September 6, 1901, Shalgosh purchased a 32 caliber Ivor Johnson revolver, which in this moment he had in his hand wrapped and concealed in a white handkerchief as he made his way towards President McKinley. Despite the added police detail and soldiers present among McKinley's usual Secret Service agents, no one seemed to notice Shalgosh as he approached the president. When McKinley smiled and extended his hand for a handshake, Shalgosh raised his pistol and fired two shots at point-blank range. The silence that followed was instant. McKinley stood there, shocked and bewildered, before slowly retreating as the color left his face and his blood quickly spilled onto his white vest. Shalgosh is reported to have prepared to fire a third shot at President McKinley, but before he could do so, he was punched by a tall African-American man named James Big Jim Parker, and then subsequently jumped on and taken down by several other soldiers, who all worked as a team to beat Leon nearly to death. It was actually President McKinley himself who ordered the men to stop beating Shalgosh before he was dragged from the room. Within minutes of the gunshots fired and all of this commotion happening, President McKinley was carried to the Pan American Expositions Hospital. The only doctor that could be found at the time was a gynecologist, but he was still immediately rushed to the operating room for emergency surgery. As it turns out, the first bullet that struck McKinley ricocheted off a button on his suit and hit his sternum, causing minor damage. The second bullet, however, hit him in the abdomen, passed clean through his stomach, and likely became lodged in his back in a place it could not be retrieved from. Although that bullet could not be located, his stomach was sutured and the bleeding was stopped. In the days following the assassination attempt, McKinley was actually recovering quite well. He was awake, alert, and even reported to have been reading the newspaper. Vice President at the time, Theodore Roosevelt, even took off for a camping trip during this time. He was so satisfied with President McKinley's recovery. However, on September 13th, McKinley's health took a turn for the worse. He had developed gangrene on the walls of his stomach, a condition characterized by the death of body tissue from a lack of blood flow or bacterial infection. This caused McKinley to develop a severe case of blood poisoning, and over the span of just a few hours, he grew weaker and weaker, lost consciousness, and eventually died at 2.15 a.m. on September 14th, 1901 with his wife Ida at his side. As President McKinley took his final breath, Leon Shogosh was being interrogated by Buffalo police after several days spent in jail. The Michigan native and anarchist claimed to have acted alone. He had made it known that he had nearly shot McKinley twice before he actually did since he had been stalking him for two days prior. Once upon his arrival to Buffalo at the train station and also on September 5th during his speech on the fairgrounds at the Pan American Exposition. So much for that extra security detail and soldiers he had, huh? 
But let's take a deeper dive into why Leon Shawgosh decided to kill President McKinley. Along with countless other American citizens, Shawgosh was not in favor of the U.S.'s colonization of the Philippines. He became privy to the ruthless and senseless atrocities the United States was committing against the people there, and he simply could not stand for it. There were numerous reports of torture, rape, burning of resources, and even concentration camps, which we talked about earlier. This all disgusted him. According to one of Leon's friends, the crimes against humanity the U.S. was committing in the Philippines outraged and deeply troubled him. He didn't feel like it aligned with what the United States claimed to stand for, and that it contradicted the teachings of the meaning of the United States flag. Is uh, anyone getting a bit of deja vu right now? In his confession to the police, he stated, I don't believe in the Republican form of government, and I don't believe we should have any rulers. It is right to kill them. He also stated, I killed President McKinley because I have done my duty. Later on, he also said, it was in my heart, there was no escape for me. All those people seemed bowing to the great ruler. I've made up my mind to kill that ruler. Shogosh would stand trial and was charged with first degree murder. His last words were, I shot the president because I thought it would help the working people and for the sake of the common people. I am not sorry for my crime. I am awfully sorry because I could not see my father. Shawgosh was executed with three jolts, each 1,800 volts, in Auburn Prison on October 29, 1901, 45 days after McKinley's death. He was pronounced dead at 7.14 a.m. McKinley's assassination meant that his vice president would ascend to lead the country, our favorite supervillain, Theodore Roosevelt. Up next, President Roosevelt takes matters into his own hands. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The amount of bloodshed during the Philippine American War spanned across many battles over its three years and decades after. But one of the bloodiest events of the war that took place was on September 28, 1901, at the Balangiga Massacre. To this day, it is considered the United States' worst single defeat during this war, and it is a day that shall never be forgotten. Prior to this event, the Balangiga residents on this Filipino island of Samar had a pretty good relationship with the U.S. soldiers stationed there, who were a part of the 9th U.S. Infantry Regiment. However, relations began to take a nasty turn. Word of McKinley's assassination had reached the Philippines, and it is also reported that two American soldiers attempted to molest a Filipino woman running a local store. The tension started to rise. When local Filipinos came to the woman's defense, and as a result of ill feelings by the Americans after McKinley's assassination, the American soldiers stationed in Balangiga decided from that point forward to take their revenge. They did this by forcing labor, withholding food and water from the people of Balangiga, sexually assaulting women, and just continuing to abuse their power. And as a result, the locals protested to have these U.S. soldiers removed altogether. But while these protests took place and tensions rose, the people of Balangiga, the Filipino police chief, and guerrilla officers began to plot and formulate their own plan of revenge, as well as fight back against the Americans. 
The attack was to take place in a local church where the people of Balangiga pretended to plan and hold a mass funeral and fiesta to mourn and celebrate the lives of children who died from a cholera epidemic. People from neighboring towns also made their way to Balangiga in the days before the attack to join the fiesta. On the day of the attack, on September 28, 1901, men disguised themselves as women and hid weapons inside the small caskets. As the fake procession began, Valeriano Abinador made the first strike by shooting an American sentry after having a conversation with him. Then, the Church of Balangiga rang its bells, signaling its people to start the attack. The men disguised as women pulled out their weapons and attacked the U.S. troops around them. Other locals made their way to the barracks where the other unsuspecting American troops were also attacked. When the dust settled and the attack came to an end, at least 48 of the 78 American soldiers were dead. Around 28 San Marino attackers also lost their lives. It should also be noted that this massacre is sometimes commonly referred to as the Filipino Massacre at Breakfast. Other reports of this bloody event claim that it did not take place in the Balangiga Church during this hoax of a funeral, but rather while the soldiers of the 9th U.S. Infantry Regiment were literally sitting down and eating breakfast on September 28, 1901, hence the name. Villagers in Balangiga and other people and prisoners on the island of Samar had been living in horrible conditions and were fed up with the abuse. So, it is alleged that they joined forces and ambushed these American soldiers while they were eating their first meal of the day. What's interesting about this battle is how much of a turning point it was for the relationship between the Philippines and the U.S. government from this point forward. As I previously mentioned, relations between the people on the island of Samar and the U.S. soldiers was decent. Two months prior, the government in the Philippines was transferred from the U.S. military to U.S. civilian authorities, a hopeful start to the end of the war that was spearheaded by the future president, William Taft. But this massacre shattered any hope for the reduction of U.S. military presence in the Philippines, and it reignited the tensions that had seemingly simmered down some. The news of this bloody massacre turned battle quickly made its way back to the U.S. mainland. Here, the former vice president and now current president, Theodore Roosevelt, felt nothing but rage and embarrassment. Losing this battle was a huge hit to the American government and the Army's ego and Teddy took it to heart himself, giving this very personal commitment and dedication to this war. Why was he so invested, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you why. Let's review. Teddy Roosevelt played a very instrumental role in convincing William McKinley to go to war with Spain, and he played an even bigger role in the Spanish-American War expanding into the Philippines. It's also worth mentioning that most Americans at this present time thought the war was over and done with and were paying very little attention to any coverage of the war since they thought America had won and Spain had lost. But yet, American soldiers were being killed in numbers by Filipinos, and this war that ended years ago was still going on. Teddy couldn't have that tied to his reputation and image. So what did he do to save face and fix this problem in the Philippines? Word traveled down the chain of command from him on the mainland and made its way to American General Jacob H. Smith, who was stationed near Balangiga at this time. Let's talk briefly about this guy's military background and how it easily foreshadowed the fate of the island of Samar. Jacob Smith was an army general who had his fair share of experience waging war against those he viewed as foreigners and un-American. 
He played a role in leading the violent war against Native Americans in North America, including the brutality in the Plains Indian Wars in the late 1800s. He also led Americans in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. He was wounded in the Battle of Santiago during this time, but he recovered. And in March of 1901, he was promoted to general. Since he had such success in keeping previous Filipino revolutionaries in check, he was tasked with leading the charge to pacify those on the island of Samar after the Balangiga massacre. It should come as no surprise that on behalf of President Teddy Roosevelt and the United States, he vowed to get revenge by turning the town of Balangiga into a howling wilderness. Those were his exact words, and it earned him the infamous nickname Howling Jake or Hell Roaring Jake. He commanded soldiers on land and at sea at this time, and it was his words to Marine Major Littleton W.T. Waller that gave him most of his acclaim and landed him in the most trouble. He said to him, quote, I want no prisoners. I wish you to kill and burn. The more you kill and burn, the better it will please me. I want all persons killed who are capable of bearing arms in actual hostilities against the United States. Unquote. Oh, and when he said all persons killed who are capable of bearing arms, he meant everyone over the age of 10, 10 years old and up. He wanted no mercy to be shown and no questions to be asked. He wanted the island of Samar to be burned to the ground and all the people to go down with it too. Over the course of four and a half months of destruction, an estimated 15,000 Filipinos died on the island of Samar at the hands of General Jacob Smith and the U.S. Armed Forces. Both Smith and Waller were court-martialed, but Waller faced no charges since he was just following orders from Smith. And despite the even bigger controversy and calls for more severe punishment for General Smith by Congress, editorials, and the American people, he only received a simple admonishment by his superiors in the court. Despite what the courts decided, President Roosevelt took matters into his own hands since he felt General Smith needed to be punished for his lawless and cruel actions, even though Smith was just doing what Roosevelt wanted. He decided as president to forcibly retire Smith. I wonder if this move was made by good old Teddy to feel less guilty about his role in everything. After all, would all of the atrocities and violence that took place even happen if it had not been for him and his orders to calm Samar down? I guess he needed to find a way to cope and clear that guilty conscience of his. The Philippine-American War officially ended on July 2nd, 1902. Congress passed the Philippine Organic Act. This would lead to the Filipinos having a Bill of Rights and a government led by their own people. Roosevelt even granted forgiveness to any Filipino who had participated in the war. How nice of him. There was a Filipino resistance group that denied the United States occupation and fought until being put down in 1913. The United States would control the Philippines for another 33 years. The Philippine-American War was a disaster and a combination of everything wrong with the United States of America. And that's probably why you will never learn about it in school. Until next time. This episode was co-written and researched by Noel McIntosh and Andre White. Edited and narrated by Andre White. If you want to further support the show, 
consider subscribing to the Patreon. Behind the scenes access, we're going to start uploading commercial free episodes to the Patreon as well. And it helps us continue to do this amazing work, the research and the stuff that we love doing. We love making this show for you all. You can find the link to the Patreon in the show notes. Also consider going to Instagram and tagging at redacted history underscore to tell us what you thought about the show and leave a rating and review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. It goes a long way. I truly appreciate all of you and thank you for being on this ride. Peace.